You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Folks, as always. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Now, Ben, the people who are listening at home can't see you right now, thank God. But the people watching on the live stream can, and I just wanted to share this piece of vital information with the uh, listening audience as well, you are wearing a t-shirt today that you just bought depicting Black Phillip, the goat slash Satan character from The Witch, probably the most controversial co-main event podcast Patreon movie club episode of all time dealt with this film, The Witch. And now you're over here trolling a little bit with your Black Phillip t-shirt. I don't know what you're talking about. I uh, I feel like I needed to pay homage to the goat goat, Black Phillip, greatest goat of all time. And uh, you know, once I saw this t-shirt, I was like, it's worth the $20 just to roll up into Chad's house and make him look at it for an hour. $20 you spend on this thing. Black Phillip just looking at you. I mean, it, it does look like the cover of a death metal album from what, like the early 90s. That's what I love about it. It's got a goat, just a, like a gray... Uh, print of a goat on a black t-shirt and it says black philip in uh pretty stock heavy metal, metal font. heavy yeah. metal font across the top yeah yeah that's what i love about it is you believed for a moment when you saw this shirt that there was actually a heavy metal band called black philip shit there might be there might actually be one Chad. if they're not somebody's missing an opportunity they really are they really are. So this is a one-time, you think you bought this for a one-time wear? Oh, or no, I'm going to wear this a lot. You're going to wear the Black Phillips shirt? I'm going to get a lot of use out of this. Don't you worry. Don't you worry one bit. Also, when you say the most controversial movie club choice, I mean, we're like five episodes in. And frankly, Roadhouse probably gave it a run for its money. <laughs> we're five, it's five episodes in and controversy abounds over on the... The CME Patreon Movie Club. Well, last I checked, it kind of seems like we're going to be watching Silence of the Lambs next You might time. say no controversy in this week's voting. Because right. Silence of the Lambs is uh, eating the liver out of, was it Merciful Tenders? T- tender, tender Mercies. Tender Mercies. Eating the liver out of Tender Mercies uh, with fava beans and a nice Chianti right now is Silence of the Lambs. It's just name recognition. That's all that you're, you're coasting on right now. Man, I've already started my notes for that episode because I have so much I want to say. Did you start your notes in Notes? The Notes app? No, I'm not taking it to Notes. Can't Got too many notes for Notes. Wow, that many notes? So many notes. What if I was out here writing big-ass apologies on Notes? I think you could probably squeeze your Silence of the Lambs observations into Notes. That's because you underestimate my notes. My notes are going to be copious. Setting up a... Big expectation here for your notes. Well, my notes, don't worry about my notes. My notes are going to be off the chain. Hey, have you guys heard what best-selling thriller writer Alifair Burke has to say about my upcoming novel, The Blaze? And I quote, With firm, incisive writing, Dundas makes his Montana setting come alive. The Blaze is the best kind of thriller. 
full of suspense and twists until the very end with complicated characters haunted by the past and struggling with the present. That's right, motherfuckers. She called it firm. How'd you get this blurb? What do you mean, how did I get it? How did you go about getting this blurb? The publishing company does it. Okay. They get blurbs for your you book. Didn't, you, didn't, you didn't arrange for this one? I don't know best-selling novelist Alifair Burke. I didn't think you did. The, the daughter of crime-writing legend James Lee Burke. Okay, I see now. I mean, there's a Montana there's connection. There's the Montana connection. That's why they, get, they want to get these blurbs for people for the Montana connection. Couldn't get James Lee, huh? James Lee Burke is tough to get, I've got to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, we didn't approach him, but I understand he says no to everything. Can't I respect that, honestly. The Blaze comes out January 21st, so there's still plenty of time to pre-order. As you guys know by now, hardcover pre-orders are very important for myself. Print authors, they're instrumental to whether or not my publishing company is going to let me go on to continue to write books. So please give me that support. Go out today and pre-order the hardcover version of The Blaze at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or IndieBound, or wherever fine books are sold. Firm. That's what she called it. Firm and incisive. Yeah, and you mentioned that a couple times. I've actually never heard a book described as firm before. But that well, shit is firm. Like, I can't deny it. It's an apt description. I mean, I've read your book. I wouldn't call it unfirm. Not, it's as firm not in a million as years gets. would I ever say that. A great way to look fresh and toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt or Dundasso t-shirt. Those are always available on demand all the time whenever you want them over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at SoundCloud.com slash dbeat 7 and again, as you guys know by now, that's the word beats with a Z. Beat. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Justin Gaethje closes in on maybe possible future number one contender status at lightweight. And was this the first time that watching Donald Cerrone just made us feel sad? And in round number two, Tristan Connolly, you old so-and-so, come here and give us a hug. Also, Boondock, can we borrow a few bucks? It's just until payday. And in round number three, from Vancouver to Mexico City and from Justin Gacy versus Cowboy Cerrone to Yair Rodriguez versus Jeremy Stevens, a few more frequent flyer miles in the octagon will finally qualify for a week's stay at Rich Franklin's timeshare over in Singapore. So that's exciting. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Bo Lloyd, which I believe is an actual name of an actual co-main event podcast listener. It's a pretty awesome name. You, why would you want to change it? Bo Lloyd. Well, Bo Lloyd means business, yeah. man. Bo Lloyd does not show up to fuck around. No. Bo Lloyd uh, ain't got time to play. The popular opinion on Twitter says that Todd Duffy used an eye poke to quit a fight he was winning. Todd seemed to think he would receive five minutes to recover as if it were a groin strike, but isn't it up to the cage side doctor to allow the fight to continue? If a fighter says he cannot see or is seeing double, isn't the fight over? So Ben, the return of Todd Duffy to the cage after more than four years away, we know he was feeling feelings all week leading up to the fight, had a lot of things to say about the media, goes out there against Jeff Hughes, where he's a slight underdog. Uh, the fight went on... Fast and furious for about four minutes. Uh, both guys landed strikes. And then Todd Duffy gets poked in the eye. 
There's confusion, as seemingly there always is at this point in MMA. He can't continue, so ultimately this heavyweight fight right smack in the middle of an otherwise fairly entertaining UFC Vancouver card gets declared a no contest. A real letdown, a real fizzle, if you will, for all of us who wanted to see Todd Duffy out there after so much time away. Yeah, it really, especially it felt like he's been gone so long. When he came back, it was kind of like, oh yeah, Todd Duffy. I'd kind of even given up hope that we'd ever see Todd Duffy again. He goes in there, he's looking good early on, and then to have it end like this, it was just like, man, either that guy can't catch a break, or we were wrong to ever get hyped about the return to begin with. I don't know, I mean... The thing that I think people reacted to with this particular eye poke was it seemed like we all know the things that you absolutely cannot say if you want to continue a fight in this circumstance. One of those things is I can't see or I'm seeing double or something. Once you start saying that to the referee and the doctors, that reads to a lot of people like we know that that those are the magic words. Once you say them, whether you want the fight to be stopped or not, once you say them, the fight's probably going to be stopped. It's re- there's really no way for you to say to the doctor, I can't see or my vision is compromised, and have him be like, okay, you're good to go. You know, Once you say that, that pretty much brings about the end of the fight every time. And you have to think that Todd Duffy knows that. So do you think that the eye poke is really just that bad where he's like, look, there's no point in me continuing to fight here because a lot of us knowing how this calculation plays out in both in the minds of promoters and the minds of fans and everybody, even if you felt like your vision in one eye was a little compromised, a lot of people would say you should probably keep fighting because that's a, it's not, it almost never reflects well on the person who says like, I can't see, I need to stop. Yeah. And isn't that bullshit? It is, but it's also like, in a situation like that, everybody's going to go, wait a minute, we went four years to, to come back and then we're just going to cash in the chips right here? I mean, I understand that. Like We talked about this before, how this is why the rules favor people who cheat. It's why you should cheat because the pressure is going to be on the other guy to blink his way through it and then try to get out there and keep fighting. It also seemed to me like, I guess, felt like Todd Duffy was right on the verge of winning this fight. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you're Todd Duffy and you waited four years to get back in the cage and you're out there with Jeff Hughes, I was surprised to see that Todd Duffy, in terms of betting, was a slight underdog here. Because to me, Jeff Hughes shapes up as a guy that they give you because they want you to get a win. If you are, uh, looks good getting off the bus heavyweight Todd Duffy. See, that's what... That would have been the getting off the bus calculation when you looked at both these guys. And, I, you know, Todd Duffy was doing well. Didn't he just drop Jeff Hughes with a punch right before this happened? Like, I... looked like points. He was like one or two punches away from getting it stopped. I can't, for the life of me, find it in my heart to believe that Todd Duffy willingly, like, sandbagged this thing and walked away from this fight that he had been waiting for for four years and a fight that he was winning... I guess I'm just going to take his word for it that he didn't think he could go on, that he didn't feel like it was safe for him to continue in this fight against Jeff Hughes because otherwise it doesn't make any sense for me to him to, for him to walk away. And I admit that like this eye poke comes on the heels of the Czech Congo Matt Mitrione eye poke where we've gotten some looks at it now where it kind of seems definitive at this point that Czech Congo got punched in the eye and then thumbed in the nose but still uh, went ahead and, and 
decided that he couldn't continue in a fight where he was kind of getting it handed to him. Well, and in that instance, I don't necessarily blame because I don't expect you to be able to know exactly what happened to your eye if something painful happens to your eye. I mean, I've seen people before where it's like they seem to really think that they got poked in the eye and then a replay shows that it was a punch or something legal. Yeah, he might but, not have known. Yeah, I, I don't expect you to be able to 100% tell us. What like, went in your y- eye? Yeah, like sometimes but, it's hard to know. Yeah, especially because it's just super painful and there's a lot of stuff happening. And frankly, like it didn't really help Todd Duffy either. That it, I think it was Daniel Cormier on the call of this thing was like, that didn't look like that bad of an eye poke. Right, like as it was happening, where it's like, man, that's not your eye. Like some dude didn't stick his thumb right in your eye. Like maybe it, maybe it was bad. Maybe it just didn't look that bad on the on the replay. I just continue to return to the idea that you got guys out there stripped to the waist, fighting each other in a steel cage for your enjoyment, and like on top of that, we're going to ask them to lie to us about their physical condition. Yes, and go out there and continue to fight. If he, if this guy is basically a cyclops, if he's a one-eyed man, if Todd Duffy felt like he was hurt to the point where he couldn't go out there and continue in a fight that he was obviously winning, like, I'm going to take his word for it. I don't think you train to get back in the octagon after four years away with the idea of, like, if I get the chance, I'm backing out of this thing. Like, yeah. if I get the opportunity to have this thing declared a no contest, where I probably only get maybe half my money... Uh, I'm going to take that. I think it's also not that impossible for people to imagine a scenario where you've been gone for years. You come back. You think that you're on the verge of winning this fight. You really pour it on. You dump out a lot of energy and adrenaline. And the next thing you know, you're feeling kind of gassed and you get poked in the eye. And you're thinking, maybe if the fight continues at this point, it's going to start to swing the other way. I think that that's uh, a lot of people might be thinking that once they see it. It's Again... Todd Duffy is an experienced fighter and a tough dude, so it is hard for me to imagine that he just wanted out of there. I also think, though, by now we've seen enough fights that we write out the we could write out the manual of how you should play an eye poke. Like, is it so bad that you immediately know that you got to quit? Well, then okay, you know, there's nothing you can really do. In the other instance, where you think like, okay, it's bad right now, but if you have a minute or two. There are kind of ways to slow play it a little bit. And it seemed like the ref was trying to help him out there a little bit. And I've heard refs say this before. like Because you don't get the automatic five minutes with an eye poke the way you do with a kick to the groin. Which, that already seems like a mistake. I mean, it should right, be kind yeah. of, as, as my wife has pointed out, the eyes are the balls of the face. Indeed. So you, you should get that five minutes. But he was kind of asking about that. Like, do I get the five minutes? And the ref, I've heard refs say before, the way I will buy you some time in that instance is I will talk to you for a little bit. I'll get the doctor because we, at that point we got to get the doctor, but I'll take my time out. I'll stretch it out a little bit for you to try to buy you some time to see if it's going to clear up. And I don't know, maybe he felt like he had that time and it didn't, it didn't improve at all. And so he said, I can't do it at all. But it also seems like, man, to wait so long to get back and then have it end so disappointingly it's then you go back to the locker room afterwards and you're talking to the UFC afterwards about what's next I mean it's a no contest you don't get your win money all that stuff it just seems like this is the it it might have been better to go out there and uh, get into like a, a long grind of a fight with a guy like this and See what you can do, even if you're only on one eye, then what eventually ends up happening if you tell yourself, if you tell him, like, hey, I can't see and it's over. Like, just career wise, it might be better to take your chances in that one. 
Well, that's a sad commentary. Next, yeah, I mean, there's lots of sad commentaries in this damn sport. Next question this week comes to us from Ollie Brown. So perhaps oh. noted percussionist. Ollie Brown, or former professional or baseball player? Ollie Downtown Brown. Played for the uh, the A's and the Padres, I believe. Maybe not the A's, maybe the Giants. Giants and Padres. As a fellow jiu-jitsu nerd, how amped was Ben for Misha Sirkunov's submission win? The big Latvian put on a passing clinic with a beautiful, had a beautiful sweep. He did have a beautiful sweep. Yeah. And hit a submission I haven't seen in MMA since before you gentlemen promised me a beer koozie. Ouch. <laughs> Speaking of low blows, yeah, let's take. We need five minutes to recover after that one. <laughs> that I really did like. You know what I liked about it too? Because like all of his jujitsu game on display here felt like it was from five to eight years ago. Like it's not the slick new stuff anybody's trying to blow. Oh, we're not going out there doing anything crazy and new. It's kind of like some fun blue belt stuff from two thousand and eight, and he's just making it work. I, I was totally into it. That sweep one thing was pretty rad. And then to hit a Peruvian necktie. When's the last time you even see people? Try? Peruvian necktie was one of those submissions that had about like a six-month window before people <laughs> got used to it. Yeah. Uh, so big win for Misha Sirkinov, obviously over the previously undefeated Jimmy Crute. Uh, Sirkinov now 2-1 and one in his last three. He had won or he had lost two in a row. In 2017, Ben. Prior to that, Misha Sirkinov had been uh, headed up the ranks in the light heavyweight division. He was 13-2. and two. He'd won four fights in a row in the UFC, including this UFC 206 fight against Nikita Krilov. At that point, we we had uh, Misha Sirkinov pegged as the one of the young up-and-comers in this division. How much of that momentum do you think he's gotten back at this point after wins over Patrick Cummins and Jimmy Crute, but with the loss sandwiched in there, the 38-second TKO via flying knee to Johnny Walker at UFC 235? At what, what, how do you regard... Misha Sirkinov at this point in the 205 pound division. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like that a knee knockout to Johnny Walker necessarily means we're done. We're closed the book on you, especially in this division. Cause there's just not that many people, not many like untried talents here that we can keep funneling toward a title shot. Yeah. So if you win a few fights, especially the way John Jones is knocking off contenders, he keeps teasing something big, so who knows if that's going to continue at that rate. But I think you can rebound from that, win a couple fights, and the next thing you know, you're right back in that conversation. Yeah, especially a guy like Shirkinov, who's only 32 years old. He seems to look the part. Six foot three, looks pretty good getting off the bus, so you know he's got the size to go out there and compete with the guys at, at 205 pounds. This is one of those those cases where I feel like, you know, we kind of write a guy off because he has a couple of losses. Vulcan Uzdemir and uh, Glover Tashira, by the way, both by knockout. Uh, fairly quick knockouts. All three of this guy's most recent losses uh, all have come in, in the first round. It seems to me like I agree with you. If Misha Sirkinov can win a, a couple more fights in a row, maybe he gets some of that kind of like hot prospect uh Heat back, I guess you could say. A well, little bit more excitement. There were even moments in this fight where it seemed like, okay, maybe you might be about to get away or get put away fairly quickly. And afterwards, he'd be like, oh, no, no, I wasn't worried about it. It was fine. I could feel the punches getting weaker and I was ready to get back up there and get after it. And you're like, you should maybe not rely on that so much. Maybe not re- rely on the ability to, to take a little bit of a beating and come back. Because, yeah, if you look at how he's been beaten, it's like if you can get to him early, then maybe that's the way to put him out. Jimmy Crute on the other side, obviously 23 years old, uh, an Australian, the Brute. Jimmy the Brute Crute. I see. Nice little rhyming nickname there. 
Uh, he had won three fights or two fights in a row in the UFC. He had come off the Dana White's contender series previous to that. Looked like a kind of guy who might have added his name to the list of all of these young up and comers trying to get a shot at uh, Johnny Bones Jones. But of course, comes up short here against Misha Sirkinov after stoppage victories over Sam Alvey and Paul Craig. So a little bit of uh, rebuilding, I guess you could say now, for the brute Jimmy Crute. Is that how you want to say it? The Brute Jimmy Crute? The Brute. Jimmy the Brute Crute? Jimmy Jimmy Crute. Jimmy the Brute Crute. That Brute Jimmy Crute. That ain't bad. Next question this week comes to us from Bill Shakespeare. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Here's a reference that's easy to understand. Yeah, I think I see what's happening there. He writes, So, Uriah Hall. When I first saw him on Tough, I figured someday he'd be the middleweight champ. He basically He's basically lost every big name in the division, then looks great against the middle of the pack. Do you think he'll ever make a splash at the top discourse? So uh, Uriah Hall goes out there this weekend and gets a uh, split decision in a hard-fought fight against uh, Shoeface, Antonio Carlos Jr. Ben, I would say, even though this thing was a split decision, I thought for the most part, this was as, almost as good as I've seen Uriah Hall look in a long time. When he was getting the opportunity to have the space to keep uh, Carlos Jr. off him, he was unloading pretty nasty strikes. You know, one of the uh, one of the knocks against Uriah Hall in the past has been maybe he didn't have that killer instinct. Maybe he uh, he was slow to move in to put a guy away when he had him hurt. It looked to me like in this fight he was throwing those punches with bad intentions. And so, like I don't know, man. Despite the fact that. Uh, Carlos Jr. was able to to get him up against the fence a lot to to uh, work his uh, you know slow grappling game. He's trying to it seemed like he was trying to uh, to take the steam out of Uriah Hall. I still thought that was a pretty good performance from Uriah Hall, all things considered. Yeah, I mean the uh, the speed that he has when you when he gets to work kind of an open space like that. You could see that at times Antonio Carlos Jr. had to do something to try to slow him down a little bit because he couldn't just stand there and trade punches with the guy. The guy was too fast for him. He was going to hit him and be out of the way before he could get back. So I thought it looked you know, a fairly smart adaptation made in the fight by Antonio Carlos Jr. And still Uriah Hall wins it. I think, though, hasn't the knock always been consistency? With Uriah Hall. I mean, I, I guess, sure, the stuff about, like, does he have the stuff to go out there and put some people away? We, we've seen him, you know, pull off some some pretty good stuff in there. But it's like, you know, he'll win a couple here or there and then have a letdown. And it's just putting them all together and being there every single night. That's the, been the, the problem for him. Yeah, at this point, he's got two wins in a row. He has never won more than three in a row since the very, very beginning of his career. Uh, his most recent loss is Paulo Costa at UFC 226. He's won three of his last four, but again, against, as uh, Bill Shakespeare notes here, maybe middle of the pack uh, competition, Christoph Jotko, uh, Bevan Lewis, and now Antonio Carlos Jr. I don't know if you can really fault a guy for a TKO loss to Paulo Costa at this point, since Paulo Costa is the assumed number one contender for whoever wins the uh, Robert Whitaker uh, Israel Adesanya fight that's upcoming. We don't quite know what the ceiling is yet for Paulo Costa, but we think that it's pretty goddamn high. So that's a respectable loss. The three guys that he lost to previous to that, Gegard Mousasi, Derek Brunson, and Robert Whitaker, you know, Brunson maybe being the outlier here, but a couple other champions, former yeah. champions in there. So uh, high profile losses for Uriah Hall. I think you're right though. Maybe he just needs to put together a few wins, a few more wins in a row and do it against uh, elite competition. Next question is we comes to us from Darcy LeDrew, 
who writes, Glover Tashiro is my hero and a Brazilian national treasure. Okay. 40 years old, not a dang hair on his head. <laughs> That's true. With his kids' leftover grilled cheese in his belly, and he's out in Vancouver barren up 27-year-olds. Discourse the heck out of this, please. Big win for Glover Tashira over Nikita Krilov in the co-main event, light heavyweight co-main event of UFC Fight Night Vancouver. Gets the uh, split decision win, uh, but still, like I thought, I expected Glover Tashira to get this nod, I guess. Uh, he does seem like a guy who knows who he is, has his skills, and he's just going to keep on plugging as long as he can. Yeah. He does, especially at this point now. Seem like You've seen this... With a few fighters, I think, where they, especially getting a, a big promotion, have some success and some defeats, they maybe go through a little bit of an identity crisis. Glover Teixeira at this point knows exactly who he is and what he's about, though. And But this is a, a good win. Yeah. I mean, to go, but I also do wonder, how do you think the UFC sees Glover Teixeira at this point? Well, that's the thing, because he does have three wins in a row now. Carl Roberson, Ion Kutalaba, and now Nikita Krilov. Uh, most recent loss to Corey Anderson back in July of 2018. So like in the light heavyweight division, three wins in a row, not too shabby, especially if you're going to cap it with this Krilov victory at UFC Vancouver. However, the elephant in the room that we're all thinking of is that loss to John Jones back at UFC 172. Now, granted, it was a long time ago at this point, five years ago, April 2014, like we just said. God, how is it possible that that was five years ago? Doesn't seem like Glover Deshira has necessarily like transformed himself into a different beast since then. So I think that we are all thinking about that loss and wondering what is the ceiling here for Glover Deshira. It seems like he could run off five, six, seven wins in a row and we would still kind of be like, I don't know, Glover. I don't know if we're going to put you back in there with, with John Jones. Although, think about, here are, is the list of Glover Teixeira's losses while in the UFC. Okay, are you ready for this? I'm ready for this. There's John Jones, Phil Davis, Anthony Rumble Johnson, Alexander Gustafson, Corey Anderson. Yeah, those are all good losses. Those are all high-level light heavyweights. And yet, they're also all sharing in common that I don't think he fares much better in a rematch with any of them. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But you know what? Glover Tashira, he seems realistic about it, if yeah. anything else, especially in his post-fight interview. Comes off as very likable, as far as I'm concerned. Essentially just saying, like, well, I'm going to keep plugging away, being Glover Tashira. Want to fight, you know, as many times as I can. Want to fight the best guys that I can. But maybe even I understand that they're not going to give me another title shot. Not a hair on his dang head. Next question this week comes to us from Scott in Chicago, who writes, Hey, how about my guy, Louis Smolka? Found himself in a little bit of a hole after some time away from the UFC and the loss to Matt Schnell. But he's out here uh, digging his way out with body shots on Saturday in his TKO win. How are we feeling about the last Samurai at 145? Still a pretty young dude, even though it feels like he's been around for a while. I Also kind of cool, he's doing color work for you for the English-speaking shit-eating wild men at that Ryzen show a couple weeks back. This was at bantamweight, though, right? This is not 145. This was 135. This fight. Uh, I believe. I believe yeah, Lewis yes. Smoke will return to uh, bantamweight. Are we asking, like, should he go up to to featherweight? I don't know. I like Lewis Smoke and want to see him do well. I've talked to him a couple times, and I especially, I always think about Lewis Smoke telling me about how he decided he couldn't drink anymore because he was having a problem with it. But that one of the things he, and I was like, well, what do you do? Like if you, 
how do you fill that that hole in your life that drinking used to fill? And he was like, well, I drink kombucha now. And it's almost like having a beer because it's like a little bit unpleasant. But it also feels like you're actually like drinking something. Um, but I don't like it enough to for it ever to be a problem for me to drink too much kombucha. So it's fine. And I was like, okay. That's a, that's a realistic assessment of what kombucha is, I think. But... Yeah, they see him go out there and just chip away at the body here. Because at first, when the after some of the first couple exchanges in this fight, I was like, Ooh, I don't know if he's going to have a speed deficiency here that he's unable to overcome. But he just keeps chopping away at the body. You see a little bit of veteran savvy there from Lewis Smoko. Yeah, he was the biggest favorite on this card. So it's not necessarily a surprise to see him get the first round TKO victory over Ryan McDonald here. This loss to Matt Schnell, which was a first round triangle choke loss. Again, like I've been saying pretty much about all these guys. Matt Schnell, he's triangling people these days. He's got two triangle choke wins in a row. Uh, this one over Lewis Smolka and then Jordan Espinoza, he triangled in a minute and 23 seconds on uh, UFC on ESPN 5. So, like, he, he kind of got caught by Matt, Sch- Matt, Matt Schnell's move out there uh, at the uh, Lewis Dos Santos card. Other than that, he's won five of his last six. So... I definitely think Lewis Smolka, just at 28 years old, is somebody to keep your eye on. What do you think of the way he words the nickname where it is The Last Samurai? Don't like it. No? I feel like The Last Samurai Samurai has a, uh, it's got a classier feel. You know, The Last Samurai. But there's only one The Last That's Samurai. That's true. I guess it is more distinctive. Yeah. Got that. Got that going for you. Next question this week. Comes to us from Joaquin Kalantari, who writes, have you seen this? He includes a link to the New York Times story about the new uh, California law that seeks to provide some clarity, I guess you would say, about which workers can be classified as independent contractors and which workers should be actual employees. Uh, Joaquin asks, Joaquin, excuse me, asks, what do you think laws like this would mean for the UFC, which seem to fit the bill for the type of company that this was intended to target uh, with this type of legislation? It's an interesting question, and it's one that, frankly, I don't know that we have a great answer for right now. My best guess at this point is that, number one, if you're the UFC, you don't want to get locked out of California. You do some of your best business over there in California. But... This seems like one of those laws where, number one, is anyone even going to think to apply it to MMA fighters? And number two, is it going to take a legal challenge specifically against the UFC to get them to to change that uh, classification, even just in California? Well, the thing is, we already saw a legal challenge against the UFC for this kind of thing. And then it seemed like maybe politically it got kind of caught up. Leslie Smith, when she challenged the UFC, she basically made the claim that they had uh, taken action against her for union organizing activities, which would only be a problem if they were employees, which then led to a like a challenge for the National Labor Review Board to decide, are the UFC fighters employees or contractors? And it seemed like that had met the first step and was going to move forward, and then through some kind of... The NLRB was told, wait a minute, we want to review this decision before it moves forward. And that's that's the last I've heard of on where that one is. You're right that you don't want to get locked out of California. You also don't want to be seen as avoiding California because of this. Right. Because then that's, that's, a, that's a bad look, yeah. as the kids say. Yeah. 
to be like, hey, we don't want we, the real reason that we're staying out of this state where we have made millions and millions of dollars on events is because we're scared that somebody's going to take a look and realize that we've been misclassifying fighters for years because yeah. then a huge tax bill is going to come due. Yeah, and maybe I'm just being pessimistic because I have seen a lot of the government oversight on big fight events in the past. And as we talked about, we have talked about on the show a lot, it seems like a lot of that comes from a place of everyone having a vested interest to make sure that these events go on. Uh, And maybe it's not the same in terms of this legislation. I just think that like, if you're California, if you're the UFC, clearly you have a vested interest in making sure that the UFC can continue to go back and do business in California. And I wonder if it will be the kind of thing where everyone holds very still and hopes that no one sees them and that we are just going to wait for some enterprising fighter to bring some kind of legal action before we make a move on this. It's honestly amazing that it's taken this long because and I don't necessarily know that if it's a, if an open and shut case. I've talked to labor law experts and uh, attorneys and everything about this, and especially people who have follow MMA and are familiar with the way it works. And basically what they've told me is it would be interesting. It would be an interesting challenge. It would be interesting to see how a court would decide this. But not like you could look at it and tell right away, oh, yeah, no, the fighters are, are going to win this one or the right. UFC is going to win this one. And yet, especially like in this story, the New York Times story that uh, he sent us a link to here, it mentions under the bill, workers are likely to be employees if the company directs their tasks tasks, and the work is part of the company's main business. Well, that sounds like UFC fighters right there. Yeah. The company but- tells you what you have to wear, tells you where when you got to be places. It it is your entire business basically. Is the fights put on by these fighters? I don't know. Yeah, and like I don't know. It just seems different to me than like unionizing or uh, filing a class action lawsuit, basically as a challenge to many of the UFC's business practices. Like it would take someone who cares a great deal about their classification as an employee, like someone who would either want to make a point about health insurance or. Uh, feels wronged in some other way, maybe because of the tax burden or because of some other, uh, you know, loophole that is used to take advantage of independent contractors. Someone would have to feel pretty strongly about this particular aspect of their employment to like basically probably put your fight career at risk to file a lawsuit. Right. And that's why it seemed like maybe Leslie Smith was the perfect person because she'd already been cut. And by challenging the UFC on the grounds that she felt like she had been targeted for organizing activities, she could then, in, in this roundabout way, force the challenge to the like employment classification. You're right, though, that for most people, that seems to be a way tertiary issue. Yeah. Like they're thinking more about you know more dollar signs and more more zeros on the paychecks than they are thinking about like the tax burden that's been shifted to them. All right. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That will catch you up on all the news and notes that we miss on the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, the expected outcome that I think many of us thought would happen, Justin Gaethje defeating Donald Cerrone in the main event at UFC Vancouver on Saturday night, did in fact transpire. I will go ahead and say, though, that the fight looked a little bit differently than what I would have thought while anticipating a Justin Gaethje victory. I think the conventional wisdom said Justin Gaethje has to go out there not only be aggressive and jump on Donald Cerrone early, but kind of turn this thing into a wild brawl, the sort of thing that would really uh, favor Justin Gaethje. Because if Justin Gaethje can suck you in to uh, the kind of Donnie Brook that he likes to have, he's damn hard to beat in those kind of fights because he's got a granite chin, he doesn't mind if you hit him, and he hits really, really hard. However... I don't know, man, this Cerrone fight, I think we got a slightly different look at Justin Gaethje. Maybe it's the look that we've seen from Justin Gaethje in his most recent fights, but he just looks a lot more comfortable and he looks a lot more methodical out there. Like, as far as I was concerned, Justin Gaethje was perfectly content to fight Donald Cerrone in a fight that stylistically should have favored Donald Cerrone, but it was just Justin Gaethje's power that made the difference. Ends up getting the the TKO Four minutes and 18 seconds into the first round. How'd you see this one? Well, yeah, he also, he found a home for that right hand early and realized that it was there. Yeah. And then kept going back to it. And there were a couple he landed before, the one that dropped Donald Cerrone, where you're like, wow, Cerrone is not really acting like those bothered him at all. And yet those seem hard. And I wouldn't want to stake my night on my ability to stand there and get hit by Justin Gaethje right hands. And... You know, catches Donald Cerrone coming forward. I think you're right that it was a little bit more of a complete tactical version of Justin Gaethje. But maybe it is because as we see him mature in his career, he doesn't need to do that anymore. He doesn't need to draw people into this chaos and use that as a weapon that he he can take it a little more calmly and deal with it as, as it's coming at him. Again, though, I feel like when you have that combination of one punch power, but also you can stand there and take other people's punches. That is a a siren song that is hard for a guy like Donald Cerrone to resist, right? Like he, you're going to stand there, plant your feet and hit him. And he's going to want to come right back at you. And that seems to be where he caught him here. Yeah. And it could also be maybe Justin Gaethje figured out that he can put together five title defenses in a row. If he's having crazy brawls with Brian Foster and Luis Palmino, uh, in World Series of Fighting, but if you're going to try to do it against Dustin Poirier and Eddie Alvarez, maybe it doesn't work all that all that well anymore. So it could be that he is adapting maybe to life in the UFC, figures out he's a little bit better off if he has this more methodical uh, and and uh, purposeful approach. And now he's won three in a row. James Vick, Edson Barbosa, most recently Donald Cerrone, uh, very impressive too in this in this Cerrone fight all the way around. Gets on the mic after this thing is over says he's not interested in the Irishman, who is retired. He wants to fight real fighters. Give me the winner of Tony Ferguson versus Habib. Now, we don't even know. Yeah, that fight has not even been made yet. If Tony Ferguson and Habib is the next thing that's going to happen. What do you think about Justin Gaethje as potential number one contender for the winner of some fight inviting involving Habib Nurmagomedov? And do you like his chances? I mean, I don't hate it at all. You put Justin Gaethje in there against either Khabib or Tony Ferguson, if it's, you know, eventual title shot, man, I'll watch either one of those fights. Uh, I don't mind. The thing to me that it highlighted, though, was 
the problem that we've got right now at lightweight because we have a champion and we have an obvious contender and then we got people lining up to be behind them and we can't even take it for granted that the champion and the obvious contender are going to fight first so then how do you how do you find your place in line after those guys yeah i mean it's it's a vexing question i like that every fighter who gets asked is basically all in on tony ferguson getting this shot at habib Donald Cerrone leading up to this fight uh, was kind of had his mind blown right there in front of us on camera during the media day when they asked him, you know, what if what if Tony gets uh, passed over here? Uh, he kind of didn't know how to react to that. He was kind of like uh, a living mind blown gif. Yes, yeah, yeah. For a few seconds there, he didn't he didn't quite know what to say. But it seems like all of the people who are involved in the sport are sort of like, my God, man, give it to Tony Ferguson. He more than deserves it at this point. And so I like that there are fighters like Justin Gaethje who are kind of trying to jump to the conclusion that that's what's happening. That he's basically like, give me the winner of that fight that we all know is the right thing to do. Well, there's also the fact that you see this these comments from George St. Pierre recently where, you know, we don't hear from George all that often these days. But... Last we heard was him saying, I'm retiring. Khabib would be the only fight that would interest me, but the UFC won't do it, so I'm retiring. And so now that Khabib got through the Dustin Poirier fight, that's when his management has tried to turn their attention a little bit. They're like, not Tony Ferguson. How about GSP? Let's go make a whole bunch of money. And now GSP coming out and saying, you know what? I think Khabib should fight Tony next. And, you know, saying the UFC knows where to find me. If they want to, but I'm enjoying my retirement at the moment. Like, not sounding like a guy who's like, you know what? I've been in the gym every goddamn day. I'm back in the USADA testing pool. Just give me the call, and I'm good to go by New Year's Eve. Something like that. No, it sounds like a guy who's just being like, yeah, I don't, I'm not really living my life according to the expectation that this is going to happen. And this seems like the right thing to do could be versus Tony Ferguson. If ES, even GSP is saying that, come on, man. Let's stop fucking around. Let's yeah. stop fucking around and just make the fight. Yeah. No, I agree. At this point, if they went in almost any other direction, there would be a near revolt, it seems like, at least inside the bubble. Maybe the, the casual fans would still be excited about a Conor McGregor-Habib Nurmagomedov rematch or a George St. Pierre-Habib Nurmagomedov uh, super fight of sorts. But I feel like the actual mixed martial arts pay-per-view buying public would just be beside themselves at this point. Khabib versus Tony, or we riot, Chad Dundas. We riot. Let's talk a little bit about the cowboy here, Donald Cerrone. 36 years old. He's now lost two in a row. He was on a three-fight win streak before that Tony Ferguson fight at UFC 238. Uh, This was the first time that I really felt like I was starting to see a diminished version of Cowboy Cerrone in the fight. Uh, the Tony Ferguson fight was just madness, and Cerrone started strong in that fight. He was, you know, he was getting lit up there by the second round. By the time he got his damn nose broke, and then uh, blew it out and caused that huge eye swelling that caused the, the TKO stoppage after the second round. But like, man, it's Tony Ferguson. I don't know that I saw a glaringly different Donald Cerrone out there. Not that I, you know, Justin Gaethje obviously is a, is a an elite level fighter. But like, I don't know, man, there was something about the whole Cowboy Cerrone package that we got on fight night where I was like, I, this guy showed up looking every bit 36 years old here, especially like after the fight when you clearly got really badly hurt and you're protesting the stoppage anyway, and you've got your throw your arm around Justin Gaethje 
in the post-fight interview and you're like, I love my job, man. I get to wake up and get in a fight tomorrow. I was like, no, don't, <laughs> you don't do that. You don't know what his plans are tomorrow. Don't do that, Donald Cerrone. Take some time, my friend. Yeah, I don't blame him for this complaint about the stoppage necessarily because who knows if he had any idea what happened. I mean, it was not a great stoppage because Justin Gaethje had a couple different opportunities to stop what he was doing, look at the ref, and ask the the opposite yeah. side of what the fuck is your problem, ref? Like, it why was... haven't you stopped it yet? And then I have to punch him a little more and then ask again before he finally gets in there and stops it. I mean, it was a bad stoppage in the other direction right. of but what I mean, Donald Cerrone was complaining about. I don't expect... A guy to necessarily know what the hell happens after Justin Gaethje plants a right hand on his jaw? No, of course not. So he might have, to him, he might have thought, hey, everything was fine. I was just about to get back in this one. But I see what you're saying. I I mean, I wrote about it on Sunday after the fight with him saying, you know, I still want to get that title. That's, that's still my goal. And I felt like, A, you're probably not going to unless you get a, like a Michael Bisping type scenario where... You get called upon to fill in last minute and you have one really good night against somebody who probably beats you on those other nights. That could honestly happen for Donald Cerrone. I mean, it's not the like the most likely of scenarios, but it could happen the same way it happened for Michael Bisping. And yet I also felt like I hope that Donald Cerrone doesn't feel like he really needs that or he is really lacking that. Because I think one of the things you see in guys like Justin Gaethje as a great example is there are people populating the fight game now and coming up through the ranks where the way they learned how to be like what kind of fighter they wanted to be was by watching Donald Cerrone. Yeah. He's had a really positive impact on the fight game in a lot of ways, I think. And so he doesn't really need that. That's not what people are going to remember. People won't really remember. I think, you know, when he finally retires, Oh, Donald Cerrone was pretty good. He could never win a title. He wasn't that, he wasn't that great. I think people are going to just have so many positive feelings about how much they have enjoyed watching Donald Cerrone over the years. And then him just providing a pretty good example to other fighters about how to be in this sport uh, in a lot of ways. So I, I don't really feel like he needs that. And yet it also makes you wonder is does he really feel like he does to the point where he's going to stick around way too long? Because he still clearly loves the shit out of it. And, yeah. you know, there are fights out there that you can make for him that are not, hey, go out there and fight one of the toughest, hardest-hitting dudes in the entire division. Yeah, and maybe that's the thing. Because previous to this, I feel like much of the popular conversation around Donald Cerrone, and indeed even the conversation about Donald Cerrone on this show, is that we have always talked about how he is he has made himself into such a cottage industry, study such a star into himself that like he doesn't need the title. He doesn't need to be part of the title picture. And I think as part of that, either implicitly or explicitly, we have said he can just fight as many times as he wants and go on fighting forever. And this was the first time where I where I looked at him after this fight and I was like, man, I don't know if I want Donald Cerrone to fight forever. Like, he, he to me, was sort of starting to show his age after this one and in a way that, like, uh, made me feel things about his him that I have not felt before, like, that I'm not sure how long he should carry on kind of. And like, I obviously I don't want to, you can't tell a guy to retire. You can't tell a guy to go about it any differently than how he wants to. But this was the first time where I looked at Donald Cerrone and I was like, man, am I starting? Is there a point where I'm going to start getting uncomfortable with this? And is it closer than I thought? There's also 
the question to ask when you look at Donald Zeroni, what would it take for him to be done? Right. Yeah. I mean, he is all, all well, he is like, he's talked about retirement actually, but like, uh, his actions have always led us to believe that he's going to do this as long as he possibly can. Yeah, I mean, especially if he seems to be enjoying it that much even after he gets knocked out in the first round. I mean, he does seem to have a pretty good long game uh, partnering up with a, a woman who I believe is in med school. So, yeah. uh, you know, savvy move in that department. But it also seems like Donald Cerrone is not going to be convinced very easily to, that, hey, maybe you've done enough and it's diminishing returns at this point. Maybe you should just kind of go home and stay there. He might even agree to that once or twice and then go home and six weeks goes by and he's like, damn it, I got to have something to do. Like the best chance you have to get Donald Cerrone to retire is to get him really in to something else. Like be like, hey, man, you're, you ever gone hang gliding? Maybe well, if you, you know like, Donald Cerrone has gone <laughs> hang gliding. What if every day your life was about hang gliding? You woke up and it was just hang gliding all day long. Like, so you need something of that caliber to distract him from wanting to get in there and fight again. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, did you see what happened to Austin Hubbard? Thud. I, thud Hubbard. Okay, yes, yeah. He goes out there, beats Kyle uh, Pripolek. In the curtain jerker, the right. first preliminary down there on ESPN Plus. So everyone's happy about that. Later that night, according to his own Instagram, he passed out due to swelling in his leg, had to go to the hospital, and they cut his damn leg open to relieve the swelling. Naturally, pictures of this wound up on my Twitter timeline. First, are you fucking kidding me? Dudes, stop putting gross surgery photos on my Twitter timeline. Second, are you fucking kidding me? This seems like it sucked super bad for a dude who won his damn fight on Saturday night. Here's his, his Instagram post. Well, not exactly the way I wanted to spend my night celebrating. Had to have surgery last night due to the swelling in my leg was so bad it made me pass out, which then I was taken to the hospital and had to have my leg cut open to relieve the swelling. Uh... Eye-rolling, straight-mouth emoji. Eye-rolling, straight-mouth... Like a, an eye-rolling emoji and then a straight-mouth emoji? No, the same emoji. He's rolling his eyes, but he's got the straight-mouth. You know, the... Oh, okay. The non-plussed, hmm, straight-mouth. Yeah, I'd be a little more plussed, I think, after that experience. Don't look at the picture because it's gross. Not but still, are you fucking kidding me? That sucks. Fucking kidding me? Chad, we got another look at the dude Kane Velasquez in action as a professional wrestler. Hell yeah, we did. What the fuck? How is Kane Velasquez so good as a pro wrestler? He's got the skills, man. I mean, is it possible that Kane Velasquez can take some of the ability he had in MMA, transfer it over to pro wrestling, and not like blow his knee out every six months? I mean, professional wrestling historically is pretty hard on your body, yeah. so I would still be a little bit concerned about the injury risk for Cain Velasquez, but it's got to be better than coming back to, to get real punched in the face a bunch more times as an MMA heavyweight. It's just, there's still something in me that gets worried when I see Cain Velasquez jump up off the top rope, and I'm like, oh no! Like, even if he were just jumping off the top rope and just landing in the ring... I would be concerned about his knee ligaments and everything there. But then to land on a whole bunch of people outside the ring, I get really, really anxious about it. But also, are you fucking kidding me? Cain Velasquez seems like maybe he should have been pro wrestling all along. He should never come back no. to MMA. If, nope. All right. If he can make money 
being a professional wrestler, and it seems like he can. It seems like he is a damn overnight sensation in professional wrestling. Go do that, yeah. Kane Velasquez. We wish you well. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm kidding me. I also like that he wears the bull mask, even though everyone knows he's Kane Velasquez. Well, that's why I think it really comes in handy for him to have the tattoo, like the well-known brown pride tattoo. Because there are times when he's out there and I'm like, are we sure that's Kane Velasquez? <laughs> are we positive? But then the tattoo, man, I love it. What if it turns out that it's like the prestige and Cain Velasquez has had a twin brother this whole time? Even better. Even better. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Jed, Michelle Pereira brings a lot of excitement to the cage. This we knew. In in the fight, before the fight, just a lot of a lot of frenetic energy going on in there. But Tristan Connolly is gonna be Canadian as fuck about it, not even gonna get worried when you're doing all kinds of backflips and everything, and then is just gonna take over the fight, beat you uh in his really short notice uh UFC fight, and then just be like, uh, whatever. I would like you know, maybe a little bit more time to prepare next time, but it's cool. Yeah, as I tweeted on Saturday night, Tristan Connolly's post-fight interview was like the Canadian version of I'm not surprised, motherfuckers. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Uh, I talked to Tristan Connolly today uh, He for a story that's going to be coming out on The Athletic. Uh, he had to, according to him, his management team had to talk his way into this fight. That the UFC matchmakers were not crazy about giving him Michelle Pereira because they were like, he's too big. Tristan Connolly is a natural lightweight. We think he's going to get roughed up. We think he's going to get roughnecked by Michelle Pereira. And that Tristan Connolly's uh, management team basically had to be like, no, you got to give him this fight. He's ready. He'd fought, uh, I think this is his third fight in five months. Uh, he's like the number one rated lightweight in all of Canada, according to Tristan Connolly. Yeah, he just fought at the end of uh, July. Uh, and I also like the result here. Fought at Rise FC4 at the end of July. And a win due to, as Tapology refers to it, unanswered blows. Which imagine, like makes me imagine him just standing over a, a prone person just completely laid out there and just smashing them in the face over and over again. So basically, like he fought for this opportunity and then he went in there and beat Michelle Pereira by unanimous decision. Obviously, Pereira gassed out pretty hard in the final 10 minutes. But like, I don't see how you could watch this and not just love the shit out of Tristan Connolly. To me, he's like one of the feel good stories in all of MMA so far this year to have him go out as like a five to one underdog or four to one underdog, whatever he was. Uh, and just through sheer like toughness, uh, endurance, and like being a good MMA fighter, beat Michelle Pereira. And it sounded like the folks over at his work at EA Sports, where he is the, the in-house trainer, uh, were going bananas on Monday. How do you get that job as the in-house jiu-jitsu trainer at EA Sports? It seems like good work if you can get it, man. Tristan Connolly owns, obviously, a gym in Vancouver, Checkmate BJJ. Uh, and, and like, it's both a good job for Tristan Connolly. And you and I were talking about, before we went on the air, like, kind of awesome to work at a place where they're like, hey, uh, if you want to take Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like, we got a guy upstairs. He just does that. Like, go up there on your lunch hour and roll with Tristan Connolly. You know, I remember talking to a Brazilian dude who was a jiu-jitsu instructor for one of like the 
important dudes in Abu Dhabi back before Abu Dhabi was known as a place where important grappling events would be held. And he would live there for months out of the year and basically described it as just kind of sitting around waiting for the dude to have 30 minutes to get on the mats with you. And But then you couldn't go anywhere because you needed to be basically there on call. And then, you know, he might not only have a, a narrow window of time you got to squeeze it into. I wonder if it's better if you're like at the EA Sports office because you're like, okay, well, how about I'll play fucking video games at the EA Sports office and, uh, you know, at some point, maybe somebody will roll in here and I'll show him a wrist lock. Yeah, I have no idea how his normal day goes. It didn't sound like it was a normal day there today. Uh, it sounded like it was Tristan Connolly day at EA Sports. One of the interesting aspects of this fight, Ben, and one of the, the things that like kind of puts it over the top as a feel-good story for Tristan Connolly, obviously Michelle Pereira missed weight, came in at 172 pounds, which might have been our first clue that he wasn't going to be good to go for 15 minutes here. But uh, they won fight of the night. And because he missed weight, Michelle Pereira was ineligible to get that bonus. So the UFC just said, hey, man, we're going to give we're not going to cut it in half. We're going to go ahead and give Tristan Connolly all one hundred thousand dollars, which that's got to be a pretty good way to end your night where you came in as a four to one underdog in a fight you took on less than a week's notice. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a nice little turn of events there for you. Also, I saw uh, Michelle Pereira talking about how. You know, people wanted to say he expended too much energy on his fun stuff. And he blamed on the weight cut. He said that he didn't have anybody there to help him with the weight cut, that one of his coaches was having visa issues. And so he was trying to help with the visa issues, but also trying to cut weight by himself. Also claimed that he was cutting damn near 40 pounds for this fight. Holy shit. And that the weight cut is what took it out of him, that he still he feels like he has the cardio to do all that stuff and still go three rounds without a problem. And also said the reason he does that stuff is to make the fights fun and entertaining for the fans and that he feels that this is one of the reasons that MMA has been, in his words, decreasing basically in popularity is because people are playing it too safe and just worried about winning at all costs. Yeah. He's definitely not doing that. No, he's definitely not. Uh, final note on Tristan Conley. I asked him what he was going to do with that money. He said he and his wife are both going to get new iPhones. And I was like, okay. well, they'll can, probably have some leftover. I was like, you can definitely do that for a hundred thousand dollars. He was like, well, you can't do much real estate wise in Vancouver for a hundred thousand dollars. So we're just going to bank it and hope that soon we can, uh, I think he said exchange our condo for a townhouse. And I was like, well, it sounds like you're fairly well grounded. Yeah. Tristan Conley. Either You're not going that, to Ibiza with your friends? Either that or a yacht. Maybe we'll just rent a yacht for Maybe a couple days. Maybe just live on a yacht. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Michelle Pereira. Let's talk about the reaction to this fight that some people are having inside the bubble. Michelle Pereira, obviously, he wouldn't be in the UFC right now, probably, if he didn't have this style. Because this is the thing that everyone knew about him headed into his UFC run, was that he was the crazy dude that was going to do backflips and uh, flying knees and jump off the cage and do these Superman punches and all this stuff. He managed to do it for about five minutes against Tristan Conley, and while it was happening, it was perhaps the greatest show inside eight walls. Like it's amazing to watch Michelle Pereira do this stuff. How much does it undermine it in your mind? If you got about five minutes in you, and then it seems like you are a fairly run of the mill MMA fighter for the last 10 minutes. I mean, it does depend on if it's really that you can only do this thing for a couple minutes. And then the price of doing that thing is doing not much else. I mean, if it was the weight cut, and that seems like there's some reason to believe that if you don't, if you miss weight by a couple pounds, 
Uh, it seems like there was something going on, and I can see how that would hamper you a little bit. But it is, like, we can't do the thing where we're like, we're super excited about it when you show up in the UFC, pull off a crazy flying knee uh, knockout, and give us all a really good, gifable time. But then you go out there and you do it, and it doesn't work, and you lose a decision, and fuck you, we hate you. Yeah, it's unfair. To me, like... This didn't make me want to watch Michelle Pereira any less. Yeah. Like, I am, in fact, maybe more interested in his next fight because I would like to see uh, him go out and do all of this amazing stuff that he does in the cage for the first round and see how that goes and see if he can keep it up. And if not, like, if the blueprint on Michelle Pereira turns out to be uh, he is like a backflipping Vitor Belfort for five minutes and then the final ten minutes uh, you might be able to get to him. So what, man? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the yeah. five minutes. Mm-hmm. I absolutely will. And it almost makes him like more intriguing to me to be like a, a guy where it's like, well, yeah, you have to survive the acrobat show for the first five <laughs> yes. minutes. And then after that, like maybe you'll have a shot. I also want to point out that his last loss before this came at an event called Serbian Battle Championship 19, which if I were sitting here trying to make up events that Mirko Krokop has fought in, and I was just like, we're just trying to be like, oh, the lesser known ones that he had. Like, uh, I'd hope I would come up with something as good as Serbian Battle Championship. Yeah. Uh, Tristan Connolly's nickname is Boondock. Okay. Which I believe probably is a reference to the Boondock Saints, the movie, the uh, cult classic. Yeah. And okay. also, I mean, probably a reference to the fact that he'll just fight whoever all the time, which I think is apt here. Uh, after Michelle Pereira, I asked him how it felt to fight. At Rogers Arena in Canada, obviously the, the biggest arena in Vancouver. And he was like, I showed up, I saw somebody that I knew and I said hi to him. And then I saw somebody else that I knew and I said hi to him. And then I saw somebody else that I knew and I said hi to him. And then I was like, I better not pay attention to this because this is not going to help me in getting ready for this fight. So I went into the locker room and did not look around again until the fight was over. (laughs) Just slowly realizing everybody in the world he knows is at the fight. Yeah. Just like starting to get super nervous because... Oh, all my friends are here. I guess I better not pay attention to that aspect. At least he went to the right Rogers Arena. That's right. Didn't show up in Toronto. Yeah. That would have been embarrassing. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, I'm looking at a tweet from Will Martin MMA. It appears that Will Martin is a uh, a writer there at MMA Huddle. And he's got a list on his Twitter account of when everyone arrived in Mexico City. Okay. To start getting ready for the altitude. Because we've seen our guy Cain Velasquez go out there and, and struggle a little bit during his fight in Mexico City. For example, Jeremy Stevens has been there since August 1st. Wait a minute. According to this list. He's just been hanging out. He basically did his fight camp in Mexico City. Sounds like it. Okay. If if this list is accurate. Your boy young Serge, Sergio Pettis, does not arrive until tomorrow, according to this list. Okay. Okay. So Sergio Pettis scheduled to take on Tyson Nam, who is a story in his own right. But uh, I will have a story on Tyson Nam coming to The Athletic this week. I set you up for that one, didn't I? Teed that one up for you. You could slap an easy single there into the outfield. Yep. I don't know if that changes anyone's anyone's fight picks. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, I mean, 
it's a uh, it's no joke when you're talking about elevation. You're not talking about like, oh, you know, it's 4,500 feet, and if you're coming from the beach, you, you might be a little winded. It's not like that. That's serious elevation there. Your guy, Yair Rodriguez, still only 26 years old, uh, but kind of struggling, I think, to get back to the to the the precipice of where El Pantera was maybe a few fights ago. Obviously, he had that loss to Frankie Edgar at UFC 211. Uh, where he just looked like maybe they fast-forwarded him a little too quickly into a fight with the old man, a guy who, who despite his advancing years, is still one of the best guys in the game. Of course, Rodriguez came back and had that super impressive uh, final second knockout, elbow knockout of Chan Sung Jung in their fight last November. But it seemed like he kind of got crossways with the UFC in there somewhere. And so I don't know that, that Yair Rodriguez has totally reclaimed Maybe some of the momentum that he had before. Now he gets this fight, featherweight fight against Jeremy Stevens. What's at stake here, do you think, Ben, for either of these two guys? Yeah, I think he was a victim of some classic Dana White unpromoting, where after the Frank Yedger fight, they went on to fight Zabit Magomed Sharapov. And from what he said, he objected not to the fight, but just to like the time and place. And the UFC said, no, fuck you for not saying yes immediately to what we want. We'll, we'll pretend to cut you. And then he comes back, has that knockout of Chan Sung Jung, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, maybe this is a guy you would like to do some business with. Maybe he's not somebody you want to cut over a petty disagreement like that. And you're right that it seems like he's still, maybe some of it is inactivity, some of it is the UFC acting like, oh, who needs a guy like Yair Rodriguez? And we're like, eh, you could sure use him. He seems like he has exactly the kind of talents that you would like to put on display out there. But now you see him here in a main event in Mexico City, and it seems like this has got to be the UFC's attempt to put him to good use. Yeah, speaking of Zabit Magomed Sharapov, Jeremy Stevens coming off two losses in a row, albeit to Jose Aldo and Zabit Magomed Sharapov, so some high-level competition there for him. He'd won three fights in a row previous to that. I don't have the odds here in front of me. I don't know if you do, but this does seem like a fight... It could be a showcase fight for Yair Rodriguez. I think you're you're, you're going to have an opportunity for him to exercise his high-flying style, but you're also going to have Jeremy Stevens out there doing the Jeremy Stevens thing where he headhunts for a knockout. So either way, you probably get uh, what you're looking for out of this fight if you are the UFC, but it does seem like one to me that maybe is is set up to kind of get Yair Rodriguez back on his feet a little bit more. The odds are a lot closer than I would have thought. I would have thought that Yair would be favored a little bit, and it's kind of a toss-up, like like minus 110, minus 110. Oh, it's a push. Basic, well, for some of them it is. Some have Yair as a slight favorite, but yeah. Uh, you know, the way Jeremy Stevens fights, I think at this point, there aren't a whole lot of surprises. He does a lot of things very well, and he's a tough guy, and he hits hard, so you got to be careful with him. But I also think that a guy with... Uh, Yair Rodriguez's speed and overall athleticism, he should be able to beat somebody like Jeremy Stevens unless you fuck around and get caught. Yeah. Which does also seem like something that could happen. Yeah. You know, every time I see a Jeremy Stevens fight, I think of Jeremy Stevens as if he is like closing in on 40 years old. But he's actually 33. Still a young, spry UFC fighter uh, that has just been around forever. Um, Jeremy Stevens seems to be one of these guys that, like I said, he's won three in a row. He beats the Josh Emmett's 
uh, like the downside of his career, Gilbert Melendez is the downside of his career, Henan Barrows, but he always lets down when he gets in there with guys like Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, uh, Hanatu Moicano, he lost to. Obviously, I mentioned the two straight losses. So maybe this is a little bit of a litmus test fight here for, for Yair Rodriguez. Maybe if you beat Jeremy Stevens, uh, you have graduated to the, the upper class, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you do go out there and you beat Jeremy Stevens, then maybe some fun stuff starts to happen for you after that, especially if you go out there and it's Mexico City and you're flying around throwing spinning elbow attacks and everything and, and could finish the guy and then it's a great big party and you're the center of attention. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than to have a, a solid following in Mexico City if you are Yair Rodriguez. What else do you like here on this card? What what uh, Anything else? This is one of those uh, ESPN uh, plus fight cards that, uh, well, first of all, there's only four fights scheduled for the main card on 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 the Wikipedia page that I'm looking at, although it doesn't include Pettis versus Nam, and it doesn't uh, include Irene Aldana versus uh, Vanessa Mello. So maybe you end up getting a six-fight main card out of this thing anyway. But uh, I mean, does it really matter if it's all on ESPN Plus? No, you just just set it and forget it. You know, I watched all of UFC Vancouver on my damn phone. Really? Yeah, because I was in my office working, and my kids were because of the early start time, my kids were up, so they were in the. Uh, in the TV room watching their shows. And I have to say, I had an amazing, amazingly clear and glitch-free experience. What? Watching on my phone. God damn it. Of course, I'm flying with the Nighthawk, as you know. Well, the Nighthawk is right in there in my office, feet away. So I feel like, especially this one, I was watching it, and the stuff I cared least about came in crystal clear. And I don't know if it was just more people getting on and watching it, but like towards the last two fights, it was like, Okay, this is almost intolerable. Had to keep starting it over, over, over and over again. I'm just like, okay, so this is this is your streaming service that I'm paying for because I'm not enjoying myself right now. Have you considered flying with the Nighthawk? Well, I'm considering it right this very moment. <laughs> is there anything else on you on ESPN Plus 17 that you want to see? You got your what looks like the co-main right now, a strawweight fight, Carlo Esparza versus Alexa Grasso. Some uh, you know some interesting stuff to see there but i feel like this is one of those espn plus cards where there's a big drop off yeah there is well i'm interested in see what alexa grasso can do here uh but you're right that there's not a whole lot of other stuff here that really gets your attention all right let's do our, our just saying stuff i'm sorry and then we will get out of here for this week ben what is your just saying stuff chad i know that you've been reading a lot of the stuff about the Things we're learning from the antitrust suit. Bloody Elbow has had a whole lot of good stuff about what we can learn from uh, court filings, especially when it comes to fighter pay. And one of the things that they have here is basically a slide that I believe was part of the sales pitch back when the UFC was undergoing or, you know, looking for investors, that kind of thing. One of the things that they highlight that they wanted to allay everybody's fears on were the risk of fighter compensation inflation. Uh, and what they claim here is we believe our long-term 20% of revenue assumption is reasonable. In other words, we believe we can keep fighter pay to 20% of our revenue here. Now we've talked about this before as then that was the one question that we wanted to know the answer to. If we could ask the UFC brass anything and get an honest answer, we'd ask, what is the split? Well, now we know basically what the split is. We also know it it's not an accident. No. <laughs> it didn't just happen that way. 
That is the plan. Yeah. The plan is to not let fighter compensation rise above that level. One-fifth yeah. of the total take here. So I guess I'm just saying if you're a fighter, this kind of spells it out for you, doesn't it? That it's, it is this way for a reason. They have this in their minds that they want to make sure you guys do not get too big a share of, of the overall pie here. And they are not going to willingly move on that one. So if you think that maybe fighters deserve compensation kind of in the level with NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, where it's closer to a 50-50 split and all those other organizations, and somehow they manage to not just go instantly bankrupt... Maybe it's up to you to do something about it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Yeah, if you want to make in the neighborhood of that MLB-NFL split, what I like to think about is, if you are a UFC fighter, think about what you make now, double it, then add a little bit more. <laughs> Sprinkle a little extra little cheddar cheese on the top of that one. And that's where you should be at. Yeah. Like almost no matter who you are in the, in the, in the pecking order over there at the UFC. Well, this week I'm just saying shout out to our guy Hunter Ozier, Montana native, goes out there and gets his uh, first actual UFC win after uh, coming through on the Contender Series uh, this weekend in UFC Vancouver. I feel like the first reference to Poplar Montana during the Hunter Ozier fight, I was like, hell yeah, Poplar Montana. Second reference, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, Poplar, tiny town in Montana, getting a little shine, all right. Third reference, I was like, cool, having a potluck in Poplar for Hunter, that's that's awesome. Fourth reference, I was like, this is the only thing they know about this guy. Yeah, Yeah, and don't really know anything about Poplar or where it is or what's going on there. Just saying. Just saying. 406, stand up. That's right. Just like maybe have another fact ready to go. And they might get so excited and popular they put in another streetlight. I mean, don't get too crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back, well, Wednesday, frankly, for the co-main event Patreon live chat. Uh, and then Friday again for the co-main event Patreon power hour. If you are already a member of our Patreon uh, community, you know what to do. Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and take in all the damn content that comes out all the time over there. If you would like to be a member of that community, well, just head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up. You can get in as low as the $1 a month level and you still get access to the live chats. All kinds of stuff happen at co-main event podcast uh, Patreon page all the way up to the $10 patrons who get access to everything we do, including the co-main event podcast Patreon movie club, which is a lot of fun. We do it once every two weeks. Sometimes there's some controversy. Sometimes a guy has to go get a shirt just because he can't let it go. A guy doesn't have to go get a shirt. A guy gets to go get a shirt. He chooses to get a shirt with a goat on it. Just don't be mad because you can't live deliciously. Whatever, goat shirt. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. It's a good fit, too. It's a good, good quality cotton working with here. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it looks like a high-quality shirt. I'm kind of sad that you're, this is the only time you're ever going to wear it. Split the sleeves there with the guns. That's why you should get in for the uh, Patreon live stream so you can see the gun show over here. What? This? Oh, that's nothing. Don't even worry about it. Vascularity is uncanny. Don't say this.